have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Amos, Amos in the Old Testament. And like I said last Sunday, when I introduced this little study through the book of Amos, if you want to find Amos, go to Daniel and turn three books to the right, and you'll find Amos, a minor prophet with a major, major message. And I did begin a study of this book last week in a series that I've given the title, God and Justice. And really the central theme of Amos is the justice of God and how it's without partiality. And a key verse could very well be found in chapter 5, verse 24. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And so that word justice, it's one of the most important words in the Bible. It's also one of the most important concepts in any society for that matter. But the Hebrew word that's used, um, used four times in Amos, 200 times throughout the Old Testament, it's a word that refers to the entire scope of God's government of his world. And the basic meaning of the word is to treat with fairness, uh, to be dealt with on the merits of one's case. And oftentimes where this term is used, it describes taking up the cause of one who is most vulnerable in society, overlooked by society, such as the widow or the orphan, those who have no social currency. And so in his law, God stated that his people were to be just and they were to be righteous in their dealings with one another. And often where you find that word justice used, you'll also see that it's coupled with the word righteousness. And so justice and righteousness, very often these are two words that are used interchangeably in many places throughout the Old Testament. And so what that tells us is that its most basic fundamental level, justice is rooted in the character of God himself. Before it's a social endeavor, before it's a legal obligation, uh, before it's a moral standard, justice, by its true definition, is a divine attribute. And the reason that we have a sense of justice is because we've been made in the image of God. Man has a built-in sense of right and wrong, and that's not the product of some evolutionary process. It's not a construct of society itself. No, there's this sense within humanity of right and wrong because man has been made in the image of God. Now, man's sense of right and wrong and man's sense of justice has been affected by sin just like every other part of man has been affected by sin. But what I want to show you in our time with this little prophet, Amos, is that outside of objective truth, the revealed truth of who God is, And what God has said by means of his word, outside of that, there really can be no real justice. Because in order for there to be justice, there has to be objective truth that applies to everyone. And so why is that important? Well, because over the last century, in many ways, Western society has severed this idea of justice from God and his law, which has given rise to much of the moral chaos that we witness today. And so rather than relying upon a sure and unchanging standard for justice, uh, we're oftentimes constantly changing those standards. Uh, 
And so the prophet Amos discovered in his day that there were those who perverted justice and even turned it into something that it was clearly not. He says in chapter 5, verse 7, Woe be to you who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. In other words, you've, you've twisted and perverted this sense of divine justice. And so that's really where we are. And I want to pick up here in just a few minutes in verse number three. But last week when we sort of began this message uh, or this series, I gave you some of the context into understanding why the message of Amos was so very important in his day and why it's important in our day, all these millennia removed. Now, in Amos's day, there was political um, instability Uh, The Jewish nation had been fractured into two after Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon. Uh, Ten of the northern tribes pulled away. Uh, They removed their allegiances from the Davidic kingdom, and they established their own kingdom in the north. Uh, Samaria eventually was the capital of that kingdom. And so the kingdom in the south was made up of two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin. Now, verse 1, Amos chapter 1, you'll notice there are two kings who are referenced here, and that's a reference to the context of Amos' day. Uh, Uzziah was king in Jerusalem over the southern kingdom known as Judah, and Jeroboam son of Joash, or Jeroboam II, was king in the north. And so Amos is called by God. He had been a shepherd He had been sort of a farmer of sycamore trees, and chapter 7 gives us insight into his background. He was from a village known as Tekoa, which was 10 miles to the south of the city of Jerusalem. So Amos was from the southern kingdom, but the call of God comes to Amos, and God sends him into the northern kingdom as a prophet who's to announce a message of God's coming judgment. And the reason for his message of judgment had to do with the fact that the northern kingdom, for the most part, had uh, turned their back on true justice. It was a time of economic prosperity. Both of those kings that are mentioned there had long tenured reigns. Uzziah in the south was king for 52 years. Jeroboam II in the north was king for 41 years. During this same time frame, much of Israel, uh, their enemies were kind of subdued, yet there was a looming threat in the north that had not yet broke out in the region. It was the Assyrian threat. And in 722 BC, it's going to be the Assyrians who are going to carry off the northern kingdom into captivity. And all of that was announced well beforehand by the prophets, Amos being one of those prophets who warned God's people about their sin, and the fact that judgment was coming. So there was material wealth, and and, and there was a form of religious hypocrisy that was true of the north, and uh, Israel was taking advantage of themselves, their neighbors, the poor had been neglected, injustice was rampant, there was a lack of true justice to be found among God's people, and so Amos is raised up as a prophet, and he's sent into the northern kingdom to announce this message of judgment. And so what is that message? Well, verse 2, the Lord is roaring from Zion. That is, he's speaking from the place of his sanctuary. Those in the north would immediately have associated this with the temple, Jerusalem, 
That's important because the north, let me tell you what Israel, the northern kingdom's first king did to try to keep his subjects from going to the temple in Jerusalem where he thought that they might be tempted to return their loyalty to the Davidic dynasty. The first king of the northern kingdom established his own state religion in the north. And he had golden calves made and uh, sanctuaries in the south of his kingdom and he told the subject of his kingdom to go and worship there. These were your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And so again, there's this religious system in the north. There's prosperity. There's a thin veneer of religion. It's void of true experience and expression. And Amos is sent with this message to cry out against it. And God's voice was roaring against their blatant injustice. That's the message of Amos. And so what is the message? How does it begin? Well, look at verse number three. Verse number three, the Bible says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they've threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. And so I will send a fire upon the house of Hazel and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Verse six, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. And so I'll send a fire upon the wall of Gaza It will devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre. It shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman and it shall devour the strongholds of Bozrah. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. And so I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. Their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord." Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. And so I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kirioth and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Now, I want to stop reading there. You go back through the verses that I just read, you'll notice there are at least six proper names that are mentioned, names of peoples, names of cities, 
And these represent Israel's nations which surrounded her. So as Amos is beginning this message of judgment, he's he's beginning with Israel's pagan neighbors, those who are outside of the covenant. But then you get into verse number four, and the message of Amos gets a little bit closer to home as he begins to deal with God's people. Thus says the Lord, three transgressions of Judah. As far as those in the north were concerned, well, that's our southern neighbors. That's our kinfolk. But Amos, you're getting pretty close to home, but you're getting awfully close to meddling now. And then imagine their surprise whenever the prophet announces in verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four. And so the message of the preacher, I'm sure it gets amens as long as the prophet is dealing with the sins of those who were not part of God's covenant people. But the moment he begins getting personal and digging a little bit and puts them under the microscope, well, that's a different story altogether. So I want to speak from this subject this morning, God's assessment of man's situation. When God looked into the world scene, when God looked into the situation of things in Amos' day, what did he see and how would he respond Dr. Chuck Swindoll has said that perhaps more than any other book of the Bible, the book of Amos holds God's people accountable for their ill treatment of others. It points out the failure of God's people to fully embrace God's idea of justice. Drunk on their own success and intent on strengthening their own financial position, Dr. Swindoll says that the people in Amos' day had lost their compassion for one another, and in particular, those who were most vulnerable. And so Amos rebuked them because he saw in Israel's lifestyle evidence that they had forgotten God. And yet, when he's beginning his message, he's not so much beginning with this message uh, jumping right into the national life of Israel, the northern kingdom itself, but it's almost as if Amos is sort of tightening the noose, if you will, around God's people by, by, by getting their attention, by speaking out against the sins that were so blatant in the societies that surrounded Israel, uh, in her neighbors. And yet from this, the message is conveyed in Amos that God is no respecter of persons. Whether one was a member of the covenant nation Israel or whether one was a member of one of the nations of Israel's neighbors, the character of God and God's expectation for humanity remains the same. And God in his judgment and in his justice, he is without partiality. So notice a few things here with me from these verses that we've looked at. Number one is the pattern. There's a discernible pattern here that's repeated over and over again, almost with a sense of rhythm and poetry as you read, beginning in verse number three. The statement there in verse three, thus says the Lord, uh, this reminds us this is the message of God. This is not Amos and his own uh, ideas. This is not his own opinion, but he's been sent with the message and that message comes from God himself. It's God through the prophet who's taking the initiative to communicate his truth to this generation. What process did that involve? Well, Peter mentions this in 2 Peter chapter 1 when he says that no prophecy of Scripture came from one's own private interpretation. 
No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so God is speaking truth to this generation, and much in the same way God is speaking truth by means of his written word into our generation, and that's why this message is so very important. There's a sense of divine authority in the message itself. So as you read from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through chapter 2, really verse 6, you'll notice that there's a very specific pattern that is used as Amos is preaching. And it reads poetically, each new section begins with this phrase, for three transgressions and for four. In the Hebrew language, this is an idiomatic expression that's used for the sake of emphasis. The idea that's being expressed is that of fullness. If we were to translate this maybe into our modern vernacular, we'd say something like this, the icing on the cake. You know exactly what I mean by that when I say that's the icing on the cake. For three transgressions and for four. For outrage after outrage. For one outrage too many. Or the straw that breaks the camel's back. That's the idea here that's being conveyed in the message. And the point that's being driven home through emphasis is the exhaustion of God's patience with sinful man. God is slow to anger, and that's something we ought to be grateful for. God is abounding in love and grace and mercy And yet the Bible says that there comes a point when his patience will end and he begins to deal with man out of his righteous and holy anger. When nations fill up the measure of their sins, the justice of God demands that he reserve them for his judgment. And yet in his goodness, God allows people to come to repentance while there's a window of opportunity. And that often brings up a question and it's a question that I've been asked When witnessing to someone, oftentimes someone will say, you know, I don't think that I can be saved. I think that time has come for me. I don't think that I have an opportunity to which I would simply say, is God still dealing with you? Do you have a a sense of your understanding of your need for God's grace and the seriousness of your sin? Then listen, God's patience has not been exhausted. Peter says the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We live in a time in which God's patience is clearly seen in the world as sin and evil is being restrained while the gospel is advancing to every nation on earth. There remains opportunity for you to repent of your sin and to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But the time is fast approaching in which God will say to an evil world, when Christ returns for three transgressions and for four, enough is enough. And there is indeed a day of accountability. So that's the pattern then that is clearly seen here in these verses. But notice secondly, Notice the people who are specifically identified. And again, Israel's neighbors, there are six of these. Six of these who are mentioned, you've got Damascus, that represents the Syrians. Gaza represents the Philistines. Tyre, it's the Sidonians. You've got Edom, the descendants of Esau. Ammon, 
descendants of Lot, Moab, also descendants of Lot. These were Israel's neighbors. And every once in a while, those maps in the back of your Bible come in real handy. When you're reading through and you find words and places and names, you may want to find out, well, where were these in relation to Israel in the Old Testament? And I imagine that most of you in your Bible, you probably have a map that has something to say about the Old Testament in uh, the days of the monarchy. It probably would do you well to look at that map of the Middle East in Old Testament times, and you could see that these nations that are mentioned here in Amos chapter 1 going into chapter 2, they, they outline Israel, the land of Israel. So God is literally singling out those nations that are Israel's immediate neighbors. You've got Damascus. It was a chief city belonging to the Syrians. It was to the north and to the east of Israel. Gaza, a place that's been in headlines in recent weeks. This was a region to the south and west which bordered Egypt. Tyre, this was to the north and west. It was a city located on the Mediterranean. You've got Edom. This was a region to the south and east. The region of the Ammonites, Ammon, was across the Jordan due east. Moab, it was south and east of the Dead Sea. And so what's happening here, God is drawing a circle around the land of Israel. He's identifying these nations which surround her, and he's marking them out for their sins, for their mistreatment of one another, for their mistreatment of God's covenant people. And these nations represent people who were outside of that covenant that God had established with Israel, yet they are still accountable to Israel's God. And so pay attention to that fact. But the idea here is through Amos, God is getting the attention of his covenant people who he's going to begin addressing there in verses 4 and the verses that follow. And for nine straight chapters, God is going to be dealing not with the Moabites, not with the descendants of Esau, not with the citizens of Tyre and the Sidonians. He's going to be dealing specifically with his people. But by introducing this prophetic message the way that he does, God is conveying to his people that when it comes to his righteous standards, he is no respecter of persons. And all of humanity is accountable to him, and his standards of holiness apply to everyone. And justice demands that he deal with everyone equally as far as his perfect law is concerned. There are no exceptions. There are no exclusions. There is no preferential treatment. And someone says, okay, well, wait just a minute. As God's covenant people, Israel had been given the law of God in the form of the Ten Commandments. God revealed his law to his covenant people, but these other nations, they had not been given that same law. So how could God hold them accountable for something that they did not have? And that's a very fair question, but it's one that Paul deals with in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, Paul says this, he says, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves even though they don't have the law. He says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. 
And so Paul's point in Romans chapter one and Romans chapter two, uh, that when it comes to issues of right and wrong, uh, justice, injustice, all of humanity is accountable to God because God has made man uniquely in his image. There's a sense in which the law of God has been written upon the human heart. And that's why no matter where you go in the world today, you'll find people who have some sense of right and wrong. And even though sin has affected that sense of morality, man has a sense of morality. And so what is it that God is holding these nations accountable to? Listen to me. It's their treatment of people who were made in the image of God. It's their relationships with others. Each of the issues that God is dealing with with these six specific nations have to do with violations of that basic understanding when it comes to the value of human life. It's something that has been stamped upon man's conscience because man has been made in God's image. God is holding them accountable to that. Uh, you know, every now and then someone will ask this question. Well, what about those who've never heard the gospel? What about the innocent man in the deepest, darkest recesses of the jungles of this world? What about the innocent man who has never heard the gospel? When he dies, what happens to him? To which I would say, he goes to heaven. But there is no innocent man in the deepest, darkest recesses of the jungles of this world. Because all are held accountable before the bar of God's holy justice. There's only one innocent human being who has ever truly lived, and it was the Son of God incarnate the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so all of humanity, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what side of the tracks you grew up on, you are accountable to a holy and righteous God. By the way, this should really serve as an impetus as far as evangelistic efforts are concerned. Because if we truly believe that humanity outside of Christ is lost, then why in the world Are we procrastinating when it comes to the Great Commission? Why in the world would we procrastinate when it comes to answering the call of God upon our life to go? Why in the world would we not sacrifice and give so that others who are willing to go would get to the fields around the world where God is calling them to go? If we truly believe that man is lost and undone apart from Jesus Christ. So these nations didn't have the special relationship with God that Israel had, but God is holding them accountable nonetheless. They didn't have the law on stone tablets like Israel. They had not been privileged to witness what the Israelites had witnessed in their history. And even though they are outside the covenant, they're still held accountable for their sins. And it's because of what had been written on their consciences. And the law of God had been written upon their heart. And it's absolutely critical that we understand this, especially when we seek to share the good news of Jesus with the lost world. Which means that we can't bypass the fact that all of humanity is accountable before God. For the law of God, which has been broken. And we're not doing anybody any favor when it comes to ignoring the painful reality of their sin and their moral accountability to a holy and righteous God. 
John 3, 16. Go to, go to the Gospel of John for just a second. And look what Jesus is saying about this very thing to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And Jesus is having the conversation with Nicodemus about the new birth and what it means to be born again and how a person can't see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Jesus is making the point that the Son of Man has to be lifted up much in the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. The Son of Man has got to be lifted up that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. And so salvation then, it's, it's not an issue of you um, performing. It's an issue of you believing in Christ. In John three sixteen, we know the verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And aren't you grateful for the truth of John three sixteen? Whosoever, I'm a whosoever, you're a whosoever. Whosoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, but pay close attention to the verses that follow. Because Jesus said God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That is, in his first coming, Christ came not to condemn the world. He didn't come in an act of judgment but he came that the world might be saved. God sent him in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so here's the, here's the, here's the point that I want to make. It's not you, when you share the gospel, you're not, you're not sharing the gospel and condemning a person when you're pointing out that person's need and the fact that they've sinned against God and that God's law has been broken. We're not condemning people when we share the gospel. Folks, we share the gospel because humanity is already condemned outside of Jesus Christ. That's the default position by which man comes into this world. And so again, that just communicates further need for urgency when it comes to sharing the gospel and preaching the message of the gospel. And by the way, especially as it pertains to issues of justice and so much of the conversation that is surrounding that issue in our culture today, where so much of the ideology that's being espoused behind a contemporary social justice movement, it minimizes personal accountability. And oftentimes what it wants to do is it wants to locate evil in the structures of society rather than in my own sinful and rebellious heart. And don't hear me when I say that the structures of society are perfect because where you have imperfect people, you have imperfect structures and systems but that happens and it listen to me it's a result because of sin in man's heart and this sense of moral accountability before a holy and righteous God this has largely been lost in our generation and we've got to recapture that sense of moral responsibility and accountability to a holy and righteous God
And so then it becomes easy for everyone to be a victim of the system. And to be sure, there are victims. There are victims of abuse. There are legitimate victims when it comes to human trafficking. There are legitimate victims when it comes to racism and exploitation and these kinds of things. But at the same time, it becomes very easy to hide behind victimology. Listen to me. To totally abdicate your personal responsibility and accountability before a holy and righteous God. It won't be because of the system that a person dies and goes to hell. It will be because of sin within the heart and unbelief when it comes to who Jesus is. And so we're all on level ground then by that standard, are we not? Now, notice number three, principles. Principles to be applied here. What sins exactly does Amos say that God is calling these nations into account for. What about Damascus in verse 3? They're accountable to God for displaying cruelty to others. He says they've, they've threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. In other words, they had trampled over other people in cruel mistreatment. And because of that, God says in verses 4 and 5 that he's going to hold them accountable. What about the sins of Gaza? Verse 6 they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. In other words, they're accountable to God for delivering others up to slave trafficking and profiting off of that. Verses 7 and 8 says that God's taken it into account and he's going to judge accordingly. What about Tyre mentioned in verse 9? What's the punishment? What's the sin? What's the crime? They delivered a whole people up to Edom and they didn't remember the covenant of brotherhood. Their cruelty is seen in that they dismissed the common humanity of others and treated, treated them as objects rather than human beings made in the image of God. And it's something that God takes into account and God says he's going to judge in verse 10. Verse 11, God holds Edom accountable for their sins. What was their sin? God says that he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually. And he kept his wrath forever. So God's holding them accountable for demonstrating persistent hatred and animosity. What about the Ammonites? Verse 13, they ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So God is holding them accountable for the destruction of life made in his image which was a blatant attack on his character. In wholesale slaughter of the infants, they were literally destroying the future for the sake of immediate gain. What about Moab? You get into chapter two, the Moabites. What sin is it that God's calling them on the carpet for? They burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Seems rather strange, but here's what's going on there simply means that he was not content to let the past be the past. And the sin of Moab is in digging up the past and refusing to forgive and move on and demonstrating a spirit of vengeance and retaliation for something that had long since passed. And God's going to hold them accountable for it. Now here's what I want you to see. 
God is holding these nations accountable, folks, for their mistreatment of others. And the sins mentioned involve specific attitudes and behaviors shown toward others. What is the law of God? Jesus said you sum all the law and the prophets up into two critical commandments, loving God with all that you are and loving your neighbor as yourself. And yet it's precisely these two commandments where we fail as sinful human beings in need of rescuing grace. Let me give you some principles, and I'm, I'm through with this. These principles are not mine. This is from Alistair Begg, but this is so helpful in understanding the message of what's being conveyed and why this is so practical especially for where we are today. You know, Romans 15 verse 4 says, the things which were written in the past were written for our learning. And so while it may seem so obscure and God is dealing specifically with the specific people who lived at a specific time, there are some principles here in these verses that apply. Principle number one, here it is. As far as Damascus is concerned, here's the principle. People are made in the image of God and must never be treated as objects or things. Cruelty toward another person always reveals a lack of understanding that people are made in the image of God. Which, by the way, this serves as a real rebuke to the pornographic culture of our time where women are objectified and treated as things to be used for self-gratification. And God takes it into account. Principle number two, as far as Gaza and what God has to say to those in Gaza, the Philistine territory, here it is. Material wealth must never take precedence over human welfare. Love of money, the Bible says it's the root of all forms of evil, and often it's manifested in man's mistreatment of his fellow man. Because there's this temptation to worship money as a God, oftentimes we become so guilty of mistreating and trampling over people who were made in the image of God in our pursuit of wealth. That was the crime of Gaza, trafficking and that kind of thing. And God says he's looking upon the heart. Principle number three, with the inhabitants of Tyre, Principle number three, here it is. Faithfulness to honor our word always matters to a God who honors his. God held the inhabitants of Tyre accountable for going back on their word. They forsook the covenant of brotherhood. That means their oath didn't mean anything. And yet honesty, integrity, following through in our promises to other people. Do you know that all of these are important issues as far as God is concerned? Human relationships are concerned. Now, some of you have been deeply wounded because somewhere along the way, someone in your life failed to honor their word, made a promise to you that they did not keep. Maybe it was a spouse who pledged to remain faithful in sickness and in health, but did not. Maybe it was a parent who abandoned you at birth, and you've struggled with that all of your life. God sees all of that, and he takes all of that into account. Principle number four, with Edom, here it is, bitterness is always inadmissible with God no matter the wrongs against us. 
The sin of Edom involved a deep-seated hatred and animosity to others. Edom cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually. He kept his wrath forever. There was no amount of appeasement. There was no propitiation that satisfied his spirit of vengeance. And God called him into account for it, just as he does to any of us who refuse to forgive and let go of a grudge. Principle number five, as far as the Ammonites are concerned, God will judge man's blatant cruelty and disregard for the helpless and the weak. What had Ammon done? They had ripped open pregnant women for the sake of enlarging their borders. Justice means the vulnerable in society are protected. And is there any member of our society more vulnerable than the little ones who were still in their mother's womb? And if God judged the Ammonites for this sin of ripping open pregnant women, how much more will he judge this nation whose streets flow with the blood of innocents slaughtered in the name of sexual autonomy and convenience? And then principle number six. Cruel vengeance has no justifiable place in human behavior. What was the sin of Moab? And why was this in particular pointed out where they dug up the bones of the king of Edom and burned them to lime. The idea is it was digging up the past in this self-righteous display of feigned outrage and a spirit of vengeance. And I can't help but see an application of this with those in our society who seem to be so bent on digging up the bones of our nation's founders and setting them on fire for their own moral shortcomings. And all the while, we refuse to deal with our own sins and our own injustices. And Jesus had something to say about those who went around looking for splinters in the eyes of everybody else while refusing to remove the log in their own eyes. The Bible says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Because it's written, vengeance is mine. And I will repay, says the Lord. You don't have to take matters into your own hands when you've been wronged. Because let me tell you something, God is the defender of his own. That's a pretty heavy indictment, isn't it? And you know what? We've not even got to God's people yet. (laughs) To whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much will be required. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? Now listen to me. This business of loving God with all that I am and loving my neighbor as myself, I know that I've come up woefully short, which means that I need grace. Oh, how I need the grace of God. when your life is under the microscope and you're made painfully aware of your own sin, aren't you grateful that the gospel is a message of God's grace in Jesus Christ? God's riches at Christ's expense. For a world of humanity that because of sin humanity has worshipped idols and humanity has been so inhumane and wicked 
in the way that it's treated other human beings. And God's going to hold humanity accountable, and he is holding humanity accountable. But let me tell you something. Jesus Christ entered our mess. He entered our world of brokenness and mess, and he was perfect. He alone was perfect and righteous in every way. He alone loved God with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he alone truly loved his neighbor as himself. And yet, he satisfied the holy, righteous wrath of God and the justice of God through his own death on the cross in my place. Died the death that I should have died for my sin. Jesus paid it all. He was buried and he rose again and that means that he's a living Lord and he will save any person who confesses their sin and recognizes their desperate need for him and his grace. And then once he saves you, The Holy Spirit comes to live within you as a believer to empower you to love God and to empower you to love your neighbor and to seek justice and the righteousness of God in your relationships with others. Every head bowed and every eye closed. We're going to sing in just a moment. And if you have never been saved and you know that God is dealing with you listen right there where you are can I just encourage you pray say Lord I confess my sin I know that I've broken your law but I cry out to you and I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross and that he rose again from the dead and I place my faith and my trust in Jesus alone save me today Lord And my friend, there is no person who has ever turned to Christ in saving faith that he's turned away. He will welcome you with open and outstretched arms. Lord, when we consider, Lord, the brokenness of our world, and there's so many issues raging in society today, man in and of himself doesn't have any answers. But the gospel is the cure. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there is no other. It's Jesus who is the way. We want to be your people, Lord, alive at this time for such a time as this, to be your witnesses, to speak truth prophetically into our culture, to love sacrificially, to demonstrate in our relationships with one another and those around us what the grace of God does and what true justice looks like. So we love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.